This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in. Whether you are listening to us on the radio live or you are listening via our podcast program, it's great to have you for another hour of science. In the studio with me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning, sir. Good morning. You well? I'm very well, thank you. The other half of you is not well. Yeah. We've left her at home. Dr. Jen's not as feeling as uh, as well as I am, unfortunately. Well, we send her good wishes if she is listening. She's which, tough. She'll um, be right. She'll be fine. She'll be back. And uh, Chris KP. Good night, mate. How are you? You're, you're well. Sorry, I'm still laughing a bit because... You're well. Thank you. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> A moment ago, I said, Liv's not here mm. today to mm. do our Twitter feed, and you said, live free. As yeah, a, as or a, die. A, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? Yeah, I like just, it. Uh, <laughs> just Hashtag me. live free. Hashtag live free. Quite seriously, that is, I, I feel like it's New Hampshire. There is a state in the US, and that I saw that as their, as their serious slogan on their red jet plates. What? Live, live free or die. Live free or die? That was That was what it said. Was it referring to like stuff that was presumably the cars was were coming towards in the you know? I, I presume it's just that you know this is the two options you have in that oh. state. <laughs> Either that, or they know our Twitter service rather better than I thought. See, I lived in New Hampshire when I did my postdoc, did and you? I don't recall being that free. rule being told to me <laughs> before I got there. There's a lot to be said for having simple life choices, though, right? I agree. I agree. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, we better get into some science news. We we have a couple of guests uh, going to be on a little bit later for you folks, but uh, before we get to that, we've got a whole of the science news because it's been a pretty big week in science. And Dr. Ewan, you've you've found some stuff that's just simply astounding. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about this. And speaking of hashtags, uh, and as I guess as someone who engages in science communication fairly regularly and also Twitter particularly, um, I was quite blown away by this study that came out uh, in Science by Aral and colleagues. And it's about fake news. Now, unfortunately, I can't do a Donald Trump um, voiceover. I wish I could. And we need Alec Baldwin in here. But uh, <laughs> but uh, so this study looked at uh, 3 million um, posts on Twitter um, from 2006 uh, through to 2017, which basically related to about 126,000 um, stories, if you like. And what they were trying to do was, I guess, get at this question about fake news and, and how quickly fake news spreads and in relation to truthful stories, so those that have been fact-checked, essentially, and it's sort of, you know, as much as we can be sure, are truthful um, and what they found is probably what we sort of suspected, but I think the the extent of it and the degree of uh, the difference is, is quite remarkable. So fake, fake news travelled further. It travelled deeper into networks and broader. So that means it's spread right throughout society further and deeper into, you know, different parts of society. But also that um, truthful tweets took six times as long as fake ones to be spread. So massive difference in how quickly they spread. Um, and falsehoods, so things that were obviously untrue, are 70% more likely to be retweeted. So get your head around that. Wow. <laughs> um, and, of course, this other thing that people always fall back on is saying, well, you know, the reason why, you know, lies and sort of propaganda and all this kind of stuff is spread on things like social media is because of bots, you know, the sort of automated kind of mm. programs essentially mm-hmm. that or software that, you know, shares stuff um relentlessly but what they actually did was looked at humans versus bots and found actually that bots are more like uh, share truthful stories and fake stories equally yep. whereas humans are much more likely to share lies <laughs> and i guess the sort uh-huh. of reasoning behind this is that um we're all human and we like to share novel stories things that are exciting even if they might turn out to be bs so we like outrage 
Um, we like things that generate emotions, and sometimes truthful stories don't do that, or at least ones potentially aren't told in a way that is exciting, which I think there's a message in that as well. Um, so I guess it's, it's, it's a really, I think, um, hugely relevant study in terms of how we communicate information as scientists, but even just communicate broadly, I think, in the community. Um, I think it also direct people to fact-checking websites. We should all do a better job of using things like Snopes and so forth for actually checking stories before we go and share them in our networks as a yeah. way of reducing this crap that's getting shared around. But do we have the time? That, I mean, this that's, is the, the, problem. That's the issue, isn't this it? This is the like, problem. Yeah. You, because you have some belief. Oh, it's interesting, um, you know, when you talk about the interest layer, I remember yeah. uh, a great line from a fictional character yeah. I remember yeah. there's, there's some irony in that. The truth is just an excuse for a poor imagination. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's, yeah, but it's, it's interesting yeah. because when you when you tell the truth, of course, you are within certain boundary conditions yeah. that make it difficult to yeah. expand upon that. Whereas when you tell a lie, the boundary conditions yeah. aren't there at all, so you can do so much more. Yeah. So, you know, and, I always tell the truth, of course. And it feels a bit Red Queen to me in the sense that you can imagine um, if you spread lies and you get a lot of traction for those lies, yeah. then you're more wow. likely to spread more lies. And those people get more followers, they get a bigger profile, which means they can do more and more of that kind of thing. Whereas if you're the person who's not sharing those kind of sensationalist things, you may never get the same amount of followers, which mm. means you have, in a social media context, less of a voice. It's the boy who cried wolf. Yeah. The first time, yeah. the first time he did it, it worked out real well. Yeah. yeah. Just don't tell the same lie twice, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. that's the... That's yeah. the real moral of that story. Yeah, so I think it's a real challenge for how we get information, yeah, and I guess stories and truth out to people, mm. but without falling into this sort of trap of you know clickbait and everything else. I but think I think now it's um, the story is the the wolf who cried boy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, but you wonder you wonder with all this with with that sort of level of information. Well, we get to a point where we can write an algorithm that helps us make the determination so yeah. that when you look at a piece of news on your social media feed, it comes up with a, hey, there's a 70% chance that this is fake news based on... Yeah, I, I don't see why that's not possible. I mean, it must be able to oh, generate think, algorithms that could do that. It probably but, is possible. Yeah. But the, I think the bigger problem is that people use social media for such a diverse range of, of reasons mm. that if you're... What you, what you really want actually is an algorithm where you can set the percentage of crap that you yeah. want. Yeah, so you said, yeah. look, I just want to have a laugh. I just want something yeah. to surprise yep. me. Fine, turn it, turn, it, turn it down to zero. But if you actually want to know what's going on in the world, okay, crank that up to 90 and clean out yeah. all the crap. Yeah. yeah. Well, see, for depressing stuff that's usually true, I follow Dr. Ewan. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas for absolute crap that has no meaning whatsoever, I follow you, Chris yeah. Pepe. Between and, us. And between the two of you, I've got a perfect balance in life. I love it. I mean, I read something from Ewan and it's like, oh, shit, really? That species as well? Like, it's, it's, it's disturbing, but I do need to know it. Whereas with you, it's usually you with your cat and a toilet bowl and anyway you know it's just stuff that's irrelevant <laughs> what's my, but, uh, <laughs> what's my toilet bowl though <laughs> it's irrelevant stuff so I think the mix is important but the awareness. mix is definitely important awareness I also yeah, reckon, yeah. Don't you reckon that there is just out there because of the all this extra information there's you know the fluff the nonsense yeah. don't you reckon that there is just like information pollution now absolutely it's like landfill full so, of rubbish so we were saying in the break i mean this is nothing new i mean marketing companies and that have been using yeah. this for for many many decades you know 50 or so mm. um to sell us products and so forth but it's the speed and the extent to which it's occurring yeah, now man. which is just so heavy i mean in the in the past you could sort of avoid most of it but um but now it's it's in everything that we uh, interact yeah with, and so. there's no gatekeepers which no, in some ways right. is a good thing but also a bad thing right because any Anyone can say anything about, you know, any topic at any time, you yeah. know, and scientific even. So, you know, you know, I say scientific inverted commas. So people will make statements about the health other, as an example and the, the yeah. spurious thing, claims in that I regard. The other problem is that, you know, in the olden days, people would, you know, people would become, they were credible if they were on television. 
as seen on TV. Oh, yeah. Now you can get a similar sort of exposure yep. by being on YouTube or Twitter or Instagram. <laughs> Correct. And you, you, even less credible. And yet yeah. suddenly, oh, yeah. yeah, I've seen him on yeah, YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're an expert. What's, what's, the, what's the Brian told me equivalent on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag Brian told me. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. It's good to see some um, solid data. Absolutely. Um, behind that as well. Chris KP, what do you got for us? Um, I've got two things. Uh, but they're both reasonably quick. Um, one thing that I thought was nifty is uh, some scientists from the University of Toronto who were examining fossils and uh, really old fossils. So we're looking at so terrestrial animals, but we're going back to sort of early Permians, that's sort of 250 to 300 million years ago, so really early stuff. Um, and in particular, they were examining tail vertebrae. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, and they were finding that um, a lot of these tail vertebrae had little splits in them. And they didn't look like they were damaged splits. They were sort of, they looked like they were quite, re- you know, regular and they were common. It was quite a common thing. Um, and then they noticed that this occurred, there was, this was more common in developing or u- uh, juvenile um, vertebrae, uh, juvenile tails, if you like. Um, and it dawned on them that what they're looking at here is not damaged. What they're looking at is Perforation. They're looking at is oh. you know deliberate, if you like, for want of a better phrase, cracks in the uh, in the uh, in the tail, um, which is exactly what you would observe in a species that was prepared to drop its tail. Yeah, this right. is what they do. And if you've heard of drop tail skinks, and it's not just skinks, loads of lizards do this. Um, it's actually caused. It's called caudal autotomy, I believe. Um, and these guys were doing it ages ago. The really interesting thing about this is not that they had these easy to drop tails to help escape from predators or distract from predators. It was that that was happening 250 odd million years ago, but then apparently they all died out and it oh. stopped. They reckon it re-evolved, you know, 50 million years ago, uh, in, you know, and is now something that's carried forward in, in, in extant species. So it's one of those things. It's such a good idea <laughs> that evolution kind of did it once, forgot about it, and they went, hang on, we know how to do this, we'll do it again. So yeah, <laughs> drop tail dinosaurs. <laughs> Um, hmm. The other thing I wanted to mention, um, just really quickly, is that uh, after a, a, an extensive examination um, of 107 different species of termites and cockroaches and mantises, etc., uh, it looks like termites are going to be reclassified. They had their own order. They oh. had their own taxonomic order for a period of time, and it turns out that they're just cockroaches. Oh, <laughs> Really? Now, so I thought you'd react like that. But is this going to be Brontosaurus, Apatosaurus all over again? So I don't think so. Because we've been through that that singularity and we've come out and the Brontosaurus still lives. The big big ones are genetics and diet. They have very different social lives. So very different sort of setup. But the way they eat and the way their genes work and the way they've evolved looks like they're kind of the same stuff. But I thought you'd be sad because it did remind me of Pluto. <laughs> like, exactly what I was thinking. I of. used to have my own order. You know? yeah. it's, like, it's like the drunk insect at the end of the bar. I used to have my own order. Uh, now I'm just a bloody cockroach. But to be, <laughs> we but shall inherit the earth. So yeah. you know, yeah, exactly. you can look at it positive. So. To give Pluto its credit, though, you know, it was it was the you know small little little baby of of the planetary system, and then is now the granddad yes. of the Kuiper Belt. Oh, yeah. So you know, it's, it may have well Pluto. Yeah. Pluto is the I, I, I see it as the uh, as the Madonna of astronomy. It's, it's just it reinvented itself. Yeah, and will again. <laughs> and will again. And will never go away. And we back to cockroaches. It's still, di- still dynamic. Like, it's still a dynamic That's right. thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's so much in that. Uh, okay, I-, I wanted to just mention briefly, because people who listen to the show a lot know I'm obsessed with sharks. 
Well, you know, obsessed <laughs> with keeping sharks in the food chain and keeping them yeah. alive and protecting sharks. It's and whenever, a good thing. and whenever, whenever there's a, you know, some swimmer gets half eaten off the coast of WA and there's all of a sudden a, a call for a shark cull in the Northern Territory, you know, as, you know, as this ridiculous sort of stuff happens, um, I, I've, I've been pretty vocal about the fact that this is a ridiculous response. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, you know, having a, a tiger cull at the zoo after someone walks into the tiger cage and gets eaten you know, so mm. like, you know don't no 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 it doesn't work um so you know sharks are like you know and i know dr ewan's big on this you know these apex predators are the most important part in many regards of any ecosystem and sharks are a great measure of what's going on around the world mm. and so there's a, a paper that came out in one of the open sites um science advances over the last week from uh, a whole lot of researchers actually from the U- u.s france and the uk have been working on this where they looked at a region of the indian ocean that is basically a, the best way to describe it, it's a long way from everywhere so if you think um about halfway between Madagascar, you know, just off yep. the coast of yep. Africa, and say, I don't know, uh, Thailand. So if you yes. sort of, and then draw, so you think about those two locations, draw a line from Mumbai straight south, and you'll get to this region of the ocean, which is thought of as pretty much, you know, pristine and untouched. That's where is, they're looking for that, that plane, right? I yeah, think. yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh oh. Yeah. <laughs> Sharknado. You can see where this is going. Um, but so this is an area that's basically pristine, with the exception of the plane. Um, <laughs> and so it's a great place to look at shark numbers and say, okay, well, well, how are they going if we assume for a moment that there's no impact of humans in that region? Now, that is a big assumption in itself, and that's Seven essentially years. what they were testing. And so what they found was, um, and, and they did this in a really extensive way because people have been traveling to this particular region to fish and so forth for a long time because it's seen as such a, a great location for that. And in fact, some of the original data came from surveys in like 1948 and then other ones in the 1970s and then the most recent stuff. And they've put all of this data into a, a particular algorithm that's used to calculate population, the, the health of populations relative to changes in environment. So it's kind of a predictive tool. And what they found was in, in examples like for, say, for example, silvertip sharks, which are very common in the area, um, this computer algorithm demonstrated that uh, the levels were about 93% what the baseline level should be for that species in that area at this time. Okay. So we're talking about major declines yeah. in these populations in what was previously thought as an area that humans mm. weren't affecting. Now, the reality is there is that um, humans are still hunting these things in that area for a variety of reasons, you know, some for some for food, some for whatever else, I don't know. Um, but it, it just goes to show that even in these most remote mm. regions, um, the overfishing around the world and the changes in, in climate and so forth are still having a big, a really big impact on the populations of these apex predators. You would, you would hope you know, they'd be relatively okay in these sort of far-off distant areas. But, of course, even when they were, they were doing some of the studies, they, they found, you know, bits of garbage and stuff mm. in the oceans there. It's not completely yeah, yeah, yeah. isolated. And, and the impact um, yeah. that we have is pretty widespread. So it's a, a, a disturbing story, but I think important to yeah. um, to remember that, no, there aren't these safe havens where these fish and sharks and so forth are all just, you know, mm. doing fine. Actually, our impact is pretty widespread across the globe. So not the best. I love sharks, so leave the sharks alone, people. Agree. Um, and when you go to the fish shop, just remember, flake is shark. Correct. They should relabel it tomorrow. Shark. Today. I don't know why they don't. Because people wouldn't buy people it. People wouldn't buy it. Really? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, people wouldn't buy it. But, but why wouldn't they buy it? Not, not, not for environmental concerns, or would they? Oh, uh, I think you'd find a few people wouldn't buy it if it was yeah. called shark. 
Just yeah. for, for other reasons? Just, uh, I think people would be uncomfortable with eating shark, and I think it's, yeah. It's, I just would have thought a, the smarter movie, if you're in WA, for example, would be just to label all of your fish shark. And they'd all buy it. They'd all buy it. Yeah. So that was the irony with the WA shark hole, though, that most people in WA were against Instant. the shark hole, even oh. though the government said, this is a great idea, and all the scientists said, no, this is a terrible <laughs> idea, and the public said that too. <laughs> oh, wow. So this would be like Dr. Ewan running a campaign to relabel all kangaroo meat skippy. They wouldn't eat that either. <laughs> I would. You would, but you're, you're a sick character. <laughs> Folks, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment talking to an eye specialist about all the things that can go wrong in your eye. Well, maybe not all of them, but just a couple and what we can do about it. You're listening to Einstein the Go-Go on 3 Triple R. 3 Triple Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. In the studio with us now is Dr. Laura Downey. She's from the Downey Laboratory, the Anterior Eye Clinical Trials and Research Translation Unit in the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Laura, it's great to finally get you in the studio. How are you? Yes, good morning. Uh, it's great to be here. I'm very excited to be on the program. So thanks again for the invitation, Shane. We- we've known each other for about 10 years and I've snobbed you off and not had you in for that whole period, but... Uh, yeah. I've managed to evade yeah. <laughs> for 10 <laughs> years, but <laughs> very, now. very pleased to be here now. That's so great. thank you. Now, you're one of the few people who've um, done all sorts of medical things on me. <laughs> and uh, in your case, it's dilating my pupils and done all sorts of tests. You've been, you know, you've, you've examined my eyes more times than I care to admit. Um, but still, we'll be kind. Thank you. Yes, well, dilation, as we've discussed, is very important for assessing the health of the back of the eye. Um, And optometrists actually have a very broad scope of care in relation to providing uh, primary eye care to the community. So it goes well beyond glasses and contact lenses, which most people think about uh, in terms of being able to diagnose diseases and also uh, even apply therapeutic treatments to different eye conditions. Is dilation important just because you can see more stuff or because of the, the action of it happening? So an excellent question. Uh, so basically the pupil uh, acts like a window to the eye. So without the dilation drops, we get a very restricted view to the back of the eye, so the retina, and so by forcing that pupil open, uh, it allows us to get a much uh, more comprehensive view to the health of the back of the eye. Yeah, so it's really about providing a greater window to view various aspects of the eye health. And we're just going general stuff here in optometry now because Chris and I, we've both got so many questions. So the ophthalmoscope. Is this just a tough way of saying a side-on telescope? I mean, what what exactly does an ophthalmoscope do? So an ophthalmoscope allows us to actually visualise the uh, structures of the back of the eye more readily. Uh, So it is a bit like a telescope in many ways. It's a specific optical instrument uh, that provides um, a view to the back of the eye and allows us to use different types of magnification so we can focus on specific ocular structures and examine the health of those areas. So things like the optic nerve, uh, Mm. which is important um, uh, for passing the messages, relaying the messages from the eye to the brain, uh, and the macula. Many people will be familiar with having heard of macular degeneration, uh, and the macula is the special part of the retina that controls your central vision. And so using the ophthalmoscope allows us to directly visualise those areas, and we can look for um, certain features that are um, relate to the health of those regions of the eye. So before we get into your specific research, because I want to get to that, 
When when someone comes in with an eye problem, how do you do the diagnosis of running, I suppose, from the surface of the eye all the way to the back of the eye? Because presumably you've got to, you've got to locate where in that system, you know, I remember something called the vitreous humour from when mm. I was in high school. It's the only thing I remembered from high school. Um, but all of these, <laughs> all of these pieces, somehow you must look through all of them and work out, you know, what is causing the problem. I mean, how do you, how do you know where to start? I mean, there are some cues that you obviously go from. Yeah. So it is really like a, a problem solving task. Uh, so someone will come in often with quite non-specific symptoms and really, one of the key components of our workup is actually that clinical history. So we start asking you questions about whether your change in vision is constant or transient, how long it's been there for, uh, maybe whether there's pain involved or light sensitivity. And all those questions are leading in the back of our minds to thinking about what level of the eye might be affected. So is it likely to be like a surface problem of the eye, which is more um, due to uh, corneal problems, or is it related to um, potentially more sinister cause, uh, which will affect the back of the eye? And we have some tests that we use so you might some of you might have had a pinhole test have you ever had a test where the optometrist puts a tiny pinpoint um for you to look through oh, oh right i, I, thought, I remember yeah. that but okay. pin, we call it the pinhole <laughs> test it's not invasive though right, right. it's, um, not it's a, like not looking a pinhole, through a pinhole not a pinhole in your eye you're looking through a just pinhole. you, you look through a pinhole <laughs> okay um, and what that does is a really simple way of actually checking the health of the retina so if the pinhole vision is normal, mm-hmm. it suggests actually that it's probably a problem with the front of the eye, whereas if it's affecting the light-sensitive retinal surface, then the pinhole vision will be abnormal. Right. So we have some kind of uh, quite simple uh, methods for trying to uh, isolate the level of the problem. Mm. Now, your research at the moment, and you do a lot of different areas, but one of the areas you're, you're keenly focused on is this issue of dry eye disease. What what is that? I mean, what what? I mean, it's obviously your eyes getting dry, but what what's going on? Why why do people's eyes dry out? And I assume you mean on the outside. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So dry eye describes a quite a complex multifactorial condition, uh, which is characterised by the tear film, which covers the surface layer of the eye, uh, being abnormal, and that can be due to uh, a lack of tear production. So you have a gland that sits at the top of the eyelid um, and that produces your tears. But then you also have other oil glands within the eyelids. And if those aren't working properly, the composition of the tears becomes abnormal and that affects how well the tears actually function on the surface of the eye. Um, So sometimes this condition is trivialised, but it's actually um, quite a serious condition and it's linked to... um, other general health conditions like anxiety and depression in particularly severe cases. And the ultimate endpoint is an inflammatory presence on the surface of the eye. So the eyes become very sore, it can affect vision, you get redness. And we've been interested in understanding the role of inflammation in driving that dry eye process. Mm. I'm just curious how much of that is affected by environmental factors versus, say, yeah, underlying genetic factors or some other factor in terms of causing dry eye. I'm sure it's a combination, but... Absolutely. So there's um, evidence that dry eye is driven by an immune dysfunction. So there's actually a problem with the 
immune system, but environmental factors like um, low humidity and wind uh, can cause an exacerbation of the condition. So certainly environment is important and we can often advise patients about methods to modify their environment to minimise some of the symptoms of the um, condition, uh, but we think that's actually predominantly driven by an immune um, dysfunction. Laura, the last time I tasted one of my own tears, I think, was at the end of Return of Jedi in 1982. But... They have a salty taste. Like, Absolutely. But, but this is a highly complex fluid, isn't it? I mean, what do we know what's what that is? Yeah, so you actually uh, target kind of a really interesting phenomenon about tears, and that is their complexity. So there's been um, more than 2,000 different proteins identified wow. in the wow. tear film. That's a lot. Um, it's a hell of a cocktail. And, and the <laughs> saltiness... <great>. <laughs> 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 the saltiness you describe is actually a measure that we use in the clinic uh, called tear osmolarity, which can be used to diagnose dry eye. So we know yeah. that people who have dryness in their tears have less fluid, and so that saltiness concentration increases. Mm. So they have what we call tear hyperosmolarity. Um, and there's a lot of interest in using that as a biomarker now in clinical trials so mm. that it can actually um, be used as an objective way of monitoring tear composition over time. So looking at whether certain treatments can cause uh, the tear osmolarity to normalise so there's not that excessive saltiness uh, within the tears themselves. So, so when, when we go and we buy you know, your local supermarket, your kind of eye drops and so forth, which as far as I can tell, correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is just salt water in, in a very expensive package. I mean, maybe there's some other stuff in there, but is this not diluting what the mm. good parts are in our tears? Like, I mean, there's plenty more fluid there, but I mean, what, you know, the idea of 2,000 proteins, I know what I'm buying in, you know, the sort of the overhead light places, and it's not 2,000 proteins. It's maybe salt water and a couple of other bits and pieces. So those drops are really a supportive measure. They're designed to boost the tear volume so that for people that have an uh, inadequate tear film, there's going to be some surface coverage. They also have some electrolytes in them that are designed to balance out the electrolyte mm. composition of the tears, um, but certainly they're not able to completely replace the physiological tear film. Um, so they're really about like a Band-Aid. Right. Um, and a lot of the research now is looking at how do we actually get to the core problem in dry eye and can we develop a therapeutic treatment um, that's not just masking some of the symptoms, but really allowing tear composition to be normalised again. Mm. So I have to ask, why such a complex mix of proteins in, in tears? I mean, 2,000 proteins, that's remarkable. So yeah, people are often surprised, um, but we're learning more and more about the tear film being able to give us information about um, all so types of different conditions. Uh, so people are looking at um, various components of the tears and trying to interrogate the tears to better understand general health um, as well. So it's actually a very useful way of assaying um, general health because yeah. it can be collected non-invasively um, and with very small volumes. Makes me think of Harry Potter. Taking the tears out of people's yes. eyes, yes, yes, read yes. their minds. Yes, that's right. Well, that's, that's, that's what you do, right? That's what that's what you do. That's you study exactly tears, what yeah. we're you doing. You just need some more magic. <laughs> Have you got a pun, Steve? As put them in. Oh my god, that would be the like coolest that. office adornment, wouldn't it? <laughs> Very cool for the kids. So, so in, in such a with such a complex mixture of things. Um, in my, in my mind, it seems like there would be it would be relatively quote unquote easy to influence that. Does does diet have an impact? 
Oh, that's an excellent question. That's what I do. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually, the first one time of our anyone interests. said that to him in the last 15 <laughs> years. It down. <laughs> yeah. um, so we have a specific interest in my research unit in understanding the role of omega threes and omega three fatty acids and how they modulate inflammation in the body and then can indirectly change the tear film composition. Mm. So omega-3s are found in high concentrations in foods like fish um, and in some vegetables uh, products as well, like walnuts and chia seeds. Uh, and what they do is once they're consumed in the body, they alter uh, a range of metabolic processes and that influences the overall inflammatory status of the body. So it has an effect not only on the eye, but also uh, on joints and cardiovascular health. And what we have found, we last year we undertook a clinical trial uh, looking at two of the most common forms of omega-3s, which are krill oil supplements and fish oil supplements. Hmm. Uh, and we compared how they worked uh, in a population of people with dry eye compared to a control group who took an olive oil placebo supplement. And what we found over three months uh, was that the clinical improvement uh, in people, so people had less symptoms of dry eye, their tear film composition improved, but that was mirrored by changes to key inflammatory markers in the tears. So we'll be able to mm -hmm. demonstrate that modulating inflammation in, in the body resulted in tear film compositional changes as well. Um, that's, that's exciting. That's really interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah, so we're quite fortunate at the university we have really interdisciplinary collaborations and so this work uh, was done in collaboration with um, Professor David Jackson's laboratory at the Peter Doherty and they have lots of um, really specialised mm. techniques for interrogating proteins and um, various aspects using very small volumes um, mm. of tears. Laura, it's it's really interesting work and as you, you know, we've been friends for a while and the uh, the eye is just the most complex and amazing part of the body. Well, I feel own. I'm biased, but well, clearly biased. I I'm think not. it's an exciting area. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, look, I say that to everyone, no matter what organ they're talking about. But, um, <laughs> no, the, I mean, it is such a it is such an interesting part of our body, and and the the complexity of the job that it does. And, Absolutely. And every time I see some sort of um, visual illusion that someone's put up on Facebook or something, I just think it's so fascinating yeah. how easy it is to trick our eyes and get it to do different things, but the health of them. It's so complicated. And hearing 2,000 proteins in mm. your tears, I think, is something that most people wouldn't have heard. And it's not salt water, folks. It's yep. something else. <laughs> so, look, good luck with this work. And um, I hope this is sort of, you know, just part of I know it's just part of what you're doing, but something that translates really into people, people's um, lives that have this dry eye problem because it is really oppressive. And that's something that, you know, if you work in air-conditioned environments, et cetera, et cetera, it's really problematic. So, good luck. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Dr. Laura Downey is from the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences at the University of Melbourne. 102.7. In the studio with us now is Kate Kenfield. She's an empathy educator and creator of a program called Tea and Empathy, and she's also a sex educator, which Chris Cape is very excited about. Kate, welcome to the Triple R studio. Well, 
Thanks, Shane. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to have you in here because these guys, uh, we, we need to learn about empathy because, well, because we guys, we just, we're hopeless at it in general. No, Ewan's looking at me strange because he's, <laughs> he's a big empathy guy. But you, you work, it, it's interesting because you work in that space that engages many of the scientific fields and healthcare and so forth in this stuff, which mm-hmm. I suppose many of our listeners, when they, they think of their interactions with certain clinicians and so forth, would not think of them as highly empathic mm-hmm. individuals. So talk us through first empathy and how you sort of define it, because I think that's something that we're probably all getting wrong. Yeah, absolutely. One of the first things that I always start with in my workshops is just defining empathy, what it is and what it isn't. Because the way we, we talk about empathy as, as a culture is often just a bit off the mark. Sometimes mm-hmm. we use the word empathy, but we're not all on the same page with what it actually means. So the, the way I define empathy is that it's being curious about and non-judgmentally engaged with someone else's emotional world. Okay. It's essentially about trying to understand someone else's emotional experience. Okay. And it's, it really, that curiosity piece is really the prerequisite, mm. I think, to being more empathic. Um, but often when we're trying to be empathetic to someone else's emotional experience, the things that we're, that we're doing are distinctly not empathic. Mm-hmm. It's things like offering unsolicited advice. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever I say that I always get these, these yeah, yeah. Uh, acknowledging nods like, Oh yep, I've, yep. I've been on the receiving end of that and probably yeah. done a fair bit of that too. <laughs> so I think there's, there's to, to any pregnant women currently out there. <laughs> Right now, you know, these, these bits of advice are what, about half hour between, like between, if you walk down the street, like every second yeah. person will be saying, you know, I could tell you what I do. You know, like, right. it's, it's constant. So that's not, so that's not how you classify em- empathy at all. No, absolutely not. Yeah. I think that, um, empathy is very much about being present for someone else's feelings and someone else's emotional experience. So, so it'd be fair to say it's, it's just good listening. I think good listening is a big component of empathy. Yeah, I think um, good good listening is kind of the one of the cornerstones of, yep. of empathy, definitely. So, Kate, how do you go about teaching empathy? Is this? Uh, it, it always strikes me as something that you know you maybe you can't teach it. I mean, can you make someone who is just take Chris KP for example? <laughs> um, could you make him more filled with empathy for others? Could we build? You know, could we rebuild him? <laughs> Find McMahon style. Oh, I think, I reckon so. My, my few interactions that I've is had that, with Chris so far, yeah. Is, I think is, so. that, is that because you, uh, an amazing have, teacher? Have, have, well, have, yeah, because <laughs> you're, you're skillful or, or because you see that I have, uh, um, empathic potential or because I'm such a hard case that <laughs> you just want to grab the opportunity. And I'm just a glutton for punishment. That, well, <laughs> yeah, prove yourself. I don't know. <laughs> I think that the, the overwhelming majority of people uh, can absolutely get better at empathy. The way I tend to think about empathy is that it's like learning a musical instrument. So you get some people in the population who uh, are are like a Mozart. You know, they they pick up a mm. musical instrument and they're naturally more highly skilled at it. You get some people in the population who are tone deaf. But the overwhelming majority of people, it's a matter of having good teachers, good learning experiences and opportunities, and practicing it over time and valuing it as a skill set that they want to build. Mm. Now, you, you must do this training, though, in, in some pretty, you know, not so much hostile, but, but difficult environments, presumably. So, yeah. I, mean, let, I mean, let's take healthcare for for example, because this yeah. is an area where as much as we always feel as though the doctors should be highly 
empathetic to us when we're in the room, to some degree, presumably if they did that too much every day of their lives, it would empty their empathy bucket. Or is that, I mean, right. how does that work? Absolutely. So I think that the example with healthcare is really fascinating. So one of the things we, we know from, um, from the research about empathy and medical providers is that their empathy drops between the first and third year of medical school. Oh, There's wow. a lot of studies wow. that that show this. In, in general, in their life. Yeah. Right, yeah. Okay. And we, we see this across um, multiple countries too. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some theories about why this, this happens. So, um, one of the, one of the main ideas about why this might happen is because there's, um, there can be an endemic bullying culture in a lot of medical learning environments. Um, one of the other theories about it is that because the, the whole culture of medicine, um, really doesn't make room for the self care that's necessary to, uh, to refuel. Mm-hmm. And uh, a big part of what I teach is about how sustainable empathy requires sustainable self-care. Okay. And yep. and to to understand this piece too, um, it's important to make the distinction between empathic concern and empathic contagion. So this is again clarifying mm. this what we mean when we're saying empathy. Sometimes when people say empathy, they're talking about this empathy that I've been talking about here, that's being curious about and non-judgmentally engaged with someone else's experience. That's empathic concern. That's the kind of empathy that we're trying to cultivate in the world. Empathic contagion is when you kind of catch someone else's feelings and oh, can right. feel overwhelmed with someone else's feelings. Mm. And that can contribute to burnout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we, I mean, we, we actually do this a lot, whether we listen to music, see films, whatever, that's empathic contagion, right? You yeah. see a sad film, you, you feel sad. Yeah. You don't know these people. Yeah. You know their actors. Yeah. And you don't like Matt Damon anymore. So it doesn't, you know, like, it's all, um, it, that's all not, not fake, but it's different. No. No, but it's, yeah, you're, you're catching those feelings. And that's not always a bad thing. Like you can, uh, watching a film is a perfect example. You can, you can catch those feelings that are, that are enjoyable and, um, you can feel the, the joy mm. and the love in a film or, um, or you can watch someone present and they're wildly enthusiastic about and passionate about a topic and, and you can feel that enthusiasm as you're, mm. as you're witnessing that. That's empathic contagion as yeah. well. Yeah. I always love that term in the movie industry, underscoring for writing the music and the, the idea that it was to underline the emotions you saw mm. in film. So mm. it's called underscoring, which is, was good. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just going to say, this fascinates me as a topic. I mean, I'm an environmental scientist and, you know, you're sort of constantly bombarded with emotions all the time about particular environmental issues, but also about, I guess, different perspectives of people. So, you know, we have issues, as an example, with land clearing and, you know, you have um, people who are trying to graze livestock and then you have environmentalists are saying, well, we need to keep the trees for the birds and the animals and everything else, right? And so I always struggle myself with how do you listen to people um, sometimes who might have a very different view and maybe <clears throat> sometimes incorrect scientifically at least, how do you engage in those conversations in a respectful way, but at the same time be true to what, you know, what science is saying, what we should potentially be doing? Um, you know, and I'm sure I've failed many times um, on social media with this, but I do my best to try and navigate those really tricky paths. And it always comes back to, I think, trying to find those common analogy, commonalities at the start yeah. where you can find some agreement on something and then go from there. But it's incredibly tricky issue, not just in the sort of area that you're familiar with, but environmental sciences as well and tackling oh. those big environmental problems. Absolutely. I think this this is a huge question and a very difficult one. And it, it sounds like you actually have quite a good grasp on the, the foundations of this, because I think it's, um, what we know about these sorts of conversations is that, um, bombarding someone who disagrees with yeah. us <laughs> with a bunch of evidence about why they're wrong mm. is not going to convince nope. them, <laughs> but, uh, fostering that relationship and making that person who disagrees with us feel more respected and empathy can be a part mm. of that. 
mm. is something that is going to be more likely to shift that needle and, and at the very least have a more civil dialogue and have the other people yeah. who are witnessing that conversation. Yeah, and I think the medium is the tricky part too, right? Because the yeah. problem is a lot of um, communication these days is via social media, yeah. which sometimes can be quite hard to generate your kind of true emotions, right? Whereas if you're having a face-to-face, you can kind of read what the person's feeling and saying. But yeah. social media, we, we all know you can make big mistakes very quickly mm. and yes. be misunderstood. So it sort of doesn't help that a lot. Of that I way. have that problem because I'm a bad typer. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm <laughs> typing there. No versus yeah. not. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's really yeah. easy yeah. in these sort of environments yeah. to... If you misspeak when you're, you know, on live radio, you can quickly correct it and you can right. see that that's happened. But if you mistype something and then you come back an hour later and realise, you know, 300 <laughs> people have retweeted tweeted what you said because it was outrageous, you know, yeah. uh, because you missed the knot. When Fake you were, news. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Fake it spreads news. like wildfire. It's a problem, so, Chris, <laughs> apparently. Um, your comment about curiosity is, is really interesting because, you know, it makes total sense to me, but also I think that it's one of those things that you can... If you're uncomfortable, you know, dealing with people empathically, I think it's much easier to, to sort of learn to be curious, to, to mm-hmm. learn to, to, to value information, I suppose. But your comment again about, about medical students, um, was interesting because you would think that, you know, people working in the medical field would need to be naturally curious. This is what, the, this is the core of diagnosis, I would have thought. Um, mm. so are there, beyond that, are there other career types or, um, or sectors that have good or poor empathy as a, as a feature? I'm thinking, I'm actually thinking about research scientists. Where <sighs> again, you think curiosity, you'd think would be, um, a cornerstone, but I'm not sure that empathy is. I, so I, I actually, to, to address your, the first part of your point. So I think that, um, people in science do, across the board, do, there is a natural curiosity there that can be, fostered and nurtured and and there, there's like a, a zone of proximal development there that you can take to that fostering empathy and, and emotional intelligence space but i think that there's also a fix-it culture mm. and a and a and a hyper valuing of uh create creating solutions to problems and that being where people are valued rather than uh, a valuing of creating relationships and holding space for feelings. Mm. So, so in, in a scenario where this is such a, a big issue, so you know, you're sort of touching on this, Chris, but we had, a, we had a guest on last week who'd left academia because the family balance wasn't working, the support structures weren't there, and we hear all the time about the mental health conditions of, you know, especially young researchers, middle to early to middle career researchers and how they're, they're struggling. And I don't think for those of us or, you know, being in this environment, we can see where that would come from. How much is that, or how much of that can be helped by literal training in the sort of stuff you're talking about? Because we, we don't get any of that, like zero, and I suppose it's just assumed that the rest of your life will teach you those hmm. things. I mean, should we be training this into our PhD students? I mean, I absolutely think so. I mean, this is why I do the work that I do, and I, I teach workshops specifically on how to cultivate these skills and the mm. the organizations that bring me in do so because they're wanting to create more empathic supportive communities within within the way they operate mm. and because they recognize that that when there's that psychological safety within teams teams create more they have better creative outputs they're more harmonious there's all sorts of better outcomes yeah. but it's something that has to be invested in because None of us are getting this education 
in our families of origin, uh, or rarely yeah, are we getting yeah. them from our families of origin, and, and almost never are we getting them in, in our education. Kate, how did you how did you get to become an empathy educator? <laughs> you, you've got an interesting story there. I mean, what 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 causes a person to take on this beast? I mean, this is this is a hard space. <laughs> what happened to you? <laughs> oh, beautiful, Chris. Hello. It's a, it's a fair question. Yeah. So I've spent um I've spent the last uh the the last ten years of my life as a sex and relationships educator. So yep. my my background is in public health and sexual health. But I had in 2013 I had a major shift to my personal health that really changed everything for me. So I for the the majority of my life I've had migraines, but I had one or two a month. So it was enough to be something that was mildly irritating, but easily navigable. Mm-hmm. And then in 2013, they turned into chronic migraines. And the definition of chronic migraines is getting them at least 15 days a month. Mine wow. turned into every day, yeah. every day. So yeah, every day of your life. Yeah. yeah. And it was to the point where I had several months where I couldn't leave my home and so this was mild annoyance turned into full disability. Mm, mm. And um, this affected every relationship in my life. And anyone who has a chronic illness will tell you that, uh, like Shane, like your example with a pregnant woman, mm. you are on the receiving end of all sorts of unsolicited advice and cure evangelism about how you can be managing your illness better. Um, so obviously the pain facets of that experience were challenging, but the social aspects of it, I would say, were actually more challenging. Mm. And so, so, my, what, so, what, so what appears to be empathy from those giving it yeah. to you, but is probably the opposite of empathy from your perspective. Exactly, yeah. 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 I could see that people really cared and were trying to connect with me, but had just had no education. Mm. So is that, is that sympathy rather than empathy? Yeah, I think, it, I mean, I don't even know if it's sympathy. I think it's just... An attempt to connect and support, but really failing to do so in an effective way. Yeah. Without the tools. Without the tools, yeah. yeah. It's sort of parroting what we see societally mm-hmm. in how we support someone who is having a rough time. Mm-hmm. Sure. But mm-hmm. it not landing. So I had been teaching about empathy as a component of some of the healthy relationships education I'd been doing, but I had never taught a full workshop in it. And so I'd gotten it in my head. How can I teach the people around me how to better support me? And I just kind of had this creative flow, uh, which interestingly, I have a fair bit of creative flow when I'm in migraine states, um, that uh, I wanted to run a little workshop in my home where I could actually control the environment. And um, I invited a bunch of friends over for something I decided to call tea and empathy. It's like I couldn't drink alcohol anymore because of my migraines, right. but I could drink tea. And uh, I wanted to give my friends an experience of what it was like to actually receive empathy because I think that's pivotal mm. to being able to give it. Yeah. So I designed this little workshop where people could receive empathy, take turns receiving empathy, as well as giving it to others. And uh, the feedback I got at the end of it is that everyone loved it and wanted to know when the next one was happening. So bang, it was off and running. Yeah. yeah. So I ran it for a year and a half in my apartment before I ran it publicly while I was managing my migraines. And. and- in terms of the advice you sort of give out to people around this, I mean, we've, we've talked a little bit about the space of healthcare and, and research in general and so forth. Is the advice different for 
empathy in the workplace relative to empathy in the rest of your life? Or, or is it one set of rules that sort of fits both? I think the the principles are pretty similar. I think the difference is that, um, like in general, I think there's no one size fits all approach that works for empathy. Mm. I think that the whole point is that different people have a different feelings constellation in any situation that they're bringing to you. Um, and I, I think that it's just kind of the, um, the, the depth of intimacy that you're going to have with your colleagues is going to be different than the intimacy that you have with your partners. So the language that you're going to use is going to be a little different. So the mm-hmm. approach that I would take with uh, a corporate TN empathy that I would be running um, or, or an, a, a larger empathy talk is going to be a little bit different than one that I would be doing that was more intimate relationship focused. But mm-hmm. the principles are pretty similar. Can I ask with, the, I guess, yeah, corporate and so forth, if, if you have a session where you bring people in and you, you, know, you sort of do these things, do you see a long-lasting effect? Or when they go back to that, I guess, workplace that may have sort of made them who they are, how long lasting is that effect? You know, in terms mm. of whether they, they are, they do become better at em- being more empathetic or whether they sort of quickly revert to, you know, being how they were in that system that may have created a, you know, what we m- might not want, I guess. Yeah. This is a really good question. And I don't have as much data as I'd like on that. Yep. So I've, I've actually, a colleague of mine and I have actually applied for a grant to do more data to, right. to find this out. So I have some, I have some anic data. Yeah. Like, you know, I get, I get, Fake I get news again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just no, it's, it's fair. I get lovely emails from people yep. saying that this empathy workshop I went to, yep. you know, two years ago, really change the way yeah. I communicate in my relationships and this was really helpful but obviously I'm all, that's self-selecting yeah right mm-hmm. so I but I I'm I'm hopeful that it's that it's helpful and I would really love to know what's necessary and how many of these sorts of sessions would be important for someone to have a long-lasting yeah. effect if only you could get the world's leaders into one of your sessions the teen empathy session I think it would be a lot better off I think so. <laughs> I would hope so. if we could combine the teen empathy sessions with the dilation drops <laughs> You'd scold your cornea, wouldn't you? I think we could uh, we could make some things happen in the Korean Peninsula. <laughs> right. Is this really some work. sort of metaphor about eye opening? Yeah, nice. there you go. Nice. I like it. That could definitely work. Kate, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. This is an area that I think, uh, especially after last week's interview, actually is particularly of interest to many in in the research community mm. and outside. But in particular, you know, those researchers who are having mental health issues and so forth. This is something that you know would help them a lot. Um, but to those who are out there with chronic illnesses or non-chronic illnesses like pregnancy <laughs> who, can get, who can really get what what this is about i think it's um you know be, be kind to each other folks and don't make it all about yourself that's probably a, a yeah. good message so kate thanks so much for coming into triple r and, and good luck with the work thank you it's my pleasure to be here kate kenfield is an empathy educator and the creator of teen empathy and is prolific on twitter so you can find her there and everywhere else we're almost out of time gentlemen we are going to have to hand over to the team from eat it chris kp big day ahead uh, middle-sized day. Well, it's half over, isn't it? Yeah. I was going to say same length as every other day. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Dr. Yoon, you're going home to take good care of Dr. Jen? Absolutely. Yeah, that Absolutely. sounds like a good plan. So, folks, uh, thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. We will be back, of course, next week. We're going to leave it there, but thanks so much for tuning in. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic Sunday, and we will see you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.